Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, energy, and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest this episode is Lawrence Marshbaum, OAM, Founder and Chairman of 10 by 10 Philanthropy and Executive Portfolio Manager of Community Capital. Merrick's Capital currently holds no financial interest in 10 by 10 Philanthropy, Community Capital or any of its financial products. Welcome, everyone. It's Adrian Redlick, the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, and welcome to our next edition of Line of Credit. I'm today excited to have Lawrence Marshbaum talking with me. I've known Lawrence for pretty much since the days we started Merrick's when he was at Sun Super and which is now ART, but he's gone out on his own and created community capital and continued to support 10 by 10 philanthropy. So very exciting ventures. Um, welcome, Lawrence. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to get a little bit of your background, but we're going to talk about really innovative private debt funder funds, which is um, community capital and how that funds 10 by 10 philanthropy. So one, a great investment, but also supporting a great cause. But maybe before we get into that, maybe give um, listeners a little bit of your history. Sure. Well, um, I, on the, you know, I, I sort of had two dual tracks really in my career. One was really focused on investing and, you know, obviously investment professional in the investment industry. And then the other track, which was, you know, my work in the social impact space. So I'll start with the former, you know, for the last 10 years, I was senior portfolio manager at Sun Super then, which became the Australian Retirement Trust. I managed a three and a half billion dollar portfolio of investments into private credit managers globally. And then also um, managed our co-investment program, which was about one and a half billion dollars invested with our managers um, across the world in some of the highest conviction positions. Um, and then before that, I worked in fund of funds, fund of hedge funds in London, um, and cut my teeth here, actually in real estate, working for the guys at Ash Morgan in Sydney, who I, I know you know, Adrian, um, and, and were in the, work of, in, in the world of property finance, sort of pre-GFC. That was where, that's where I started my career, and then I went over to London to do that. That's my background in, in um, working in, in the uh, asset management industry. And then I always say my side hustle was working, that was work in social impact. I was always very passionate about, you know, thinking about the role I could play in the world more holistically. And I founded an organization also 10 years ago called 10 by 10, which connects early stage social purpose organizations with young professionals. And we grew a movement, which then spread all around the world, which was really connecting these two groups together. And we've, you know, raised over, you know, $6 million and supported over 350 early stage social purpose organizations and engaged over, you know, 15,000 young professionals in the process. So they're the two tracks that I, that I say that, that sort of brought me to this point in, in my career, which then created the birth of community capital, which is really bringing those two worlds together. Yeah, it's a great story. It's not many people get to uh, have a, a full-time job in finance, running a lot of money and um, deliver on their philanthropic endeavours. Yeah, Everyone has best intentions for actually getting it done. Um, and to your credit, I mean, it's been widely recognised. I know you're a bit shy about these things, but including yeah, an AO. Is it Order of Australia or Order of Merit? What is Order of Australia Medal. I didn't realise there was a whole hierarchy of these things until I got one. It's like everything else in life, you know, you realise... Like, oh my gosh, there's a whole hierarchy of these things. But yes, I received an Order of Australia Medal last year, which was amazing, yeah. you know, to receive that well, level of recognition for the work that's been done. 
Um, but of yes, of course, like wasn't wasn't why I set out doing it. But yeah, nice to receive the recognition. Yeah, and and so we'll talk about ten by ten a little later in terms of it's almost got an autonomous life of its own in in some regards. But let's um, talk about community capital. Yeah, you're very you're focused on the private debt space. That was the chosen direction. You felt that was the area that to create um, a new fund, a new fund of funds that it was the best place to deploy deploy capital. So tell us a bit about community capital. Yeah, well, it really started out, um, the genesis of the idea was born sort of during COVID. Like I think many people, you know, sort of found myself in lockdown here in Sydney, doing a little bit of navel gazing as like thinking about, you know, the next stages of, of my career. And I've been with, you know, ART for 10 years. And I think that I'd seen what, what was really like a meaningful shift in focus from the institutional allocation community towards more socially responsible investing. And as I saw this shift happening towards what I felt was... A, a real shift in focus that I thought was happening right across the industry, not just at ART, but you know, at other super funds and, and other institutional investors around the country, I sort of felt like it broke down a little bit for me where I, where I felt like a lot of the managers that were coming and pitching to me were, were pitching products that were sort of making I, I like social impact that was like tangible at best, spurious at worst. Right. Which so like for an example, let's use a you know, real estate example. I remember I was seeing in a meeting one day, manager from the US came to pitch me. He's like, private credit impact fund. And what he was doing was taking his existing loan book, mapping against the sustainable development goals, and, you know, effectively any loans that he felt he could put in any of those buckets, he was calling it broadly impactful. And I remember he walked me through an example. It was like, we're making a loan to a commercial office building in Minneapolis. It's improving its NABAS rating from three to three and a half stars. It's aligned with SDG 13, its impact. And I was like, I'm not sure that the 2 million members that I represented at ART, you know, in communities right around Australia, are really going to think this loan is shifting the needle in terms of the community-based outcomes that he that 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 they would think you know a fund that's creating impact was was achieving. And so I thought, rather than sort of complaining about this, how could I create a fund that would solve for that problem? Um, and and that's when the genesis of community capital came about. And then also just with respect to like seeing the opportunity in private credit, I'd sort of felt that 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 space had also grown significantly in terms of in terms of receiving investor interest from the institutional market. Like private credit traditionally sat in this gap between traditional fixed income and private equity alternatives funds were generally investing in hedge funds. So it was like a little bit of a white space, right? And as I saw, you know, more institutional allocators leaning into increasing the allocations to private credit, it, seemed, it struck me as an opportunity to create a fund and a fund management entity that would solve for those two problems, provide institutional investors with access to high quality private credit managers whilst creating meaningful social impact at the same time. So the community capital was born about a year ago? Well, I'd say I first had the genesis of the idea, like maybe two years ago. But as you know, like with these things, it was like a Herculean lift to get it to where it got to and then have the internal support from ART, which was like a whole process to go through in and of itself. I think I, the idea was birthed probably at the end of 2020. And then, you know, as anyone that listens to your podcast has done anything entrepreneurial knows, it takes like way longer than you think to execute these things. And so it came, then the fund launched in, in December last year. And you've launched with um, in excess of 300 million of, of assets. What's the quantum today? Yeah, so in Aussie dollars, we're like close to half a billion now, which is great. And um, yeah, we have a wide ranging investor base, but mostly institutions. Obviously, was very fortunate to receive the foundation commitment from my former employer, ART. And we have other super funds that are also investors, MLC, large super fund, uh, legal super and supported by some large philanthropic foundations like the Mindaroo investors, as well as some universities from your hometown and yeah, and some other, other investors as well. So one of the things we're hoping at Merrick's to do is to introduce you to the wealth channels 
I think, you know, we've had seen great support and private credit from a number of the independent wealth advisors. And I think this is a great opportunity for them. And so, you know, one of the rationales for me in doing this this podcast is to introduce the concept. So I guess for listeners, we normally talk about our investments, but this is, it's not an area that will be in our funds. Um, but, you know, it's an area that is very much close to our heart in terms of private credit, but its ability to, to do good from having educated our clients on private credit. Um, they can get access to some of the world's best private credit funds and do some good. So maybe explain, you've touched on the investors, you know, they're some of the leading institutions in the country. Whilst they're doing good, why would they invest? They clearly have to do what's in the best interests of their members and which drive, you know, in terms of returns. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always tackled with this challenge. And so when I was always, I talked about my dual tracks, I always thought to myself, Adrian, while I was in this seat at ART, I was like, I'm in such a powerful seat here. We, we, we control over, you know, now, now ART over $200 billion worth of capital, Like, Surely there's the opportunity here to leverage this seat that I'm in to potentially do good. But the challenge that you always faced as an allocator in these in large organizations, institutions is like you, everything needs to be in the member's best financial interest. And that is the ultimate test through which any investment is considered, right? So any investment that's impact or otherwise needs to always be in members' best financial interest. So that is the ultimate test for the way in which investments are evaluated. And it's one of the reasons why more, more capital hasn't meaningfully shifted into traditional impact investing from the institutional sector. So when I thought through that challenge, my thought was, how do we create a product which actually de- delivers that? And the way in which we set about doing that was to consider, and I had seen and was inspired by a similar model in equities that was executed by Jeff Wilson, who was Wilson Asset Management, and then Matthew Grounds and Guy Fowler from UBS, who now Baron Joey, who are the joint ventures, joint venture partners with me in Community Capital, when they created the Hearts and Minds Fund. So basically, you source capacity in your underlying managers on a completely fee-free basis, and then the investors that invest with you are charged a fee that is lower that is a lo- lower cost than it would cost them to invest in those managers directly. So I went to four of my you know leading global asset managers who are running you know so the managers that are participating in the funds at this point are you know very large institutional household names and I said to them hey guys I want fifty million dollars of capacity in your flagship credit fund for free and they went Matt turned around and said to me hey like why would we do that we want to drive Ferraris and I said well. There's a number of reasons you'll do it for three reasons that I think would be very beneficial for you. Number one, you build massive businesses here in Australia. What are you showing? What are you doing to show the Australian investment community that you're meaningfully contributing back? Number two, you've got teams of people on the ground here that also in your in your in your offices globally that crying out for their organisations to be more purpose driven. What are you doing to genuinely show your employees that your organisation's really making an impact in society? And number three, I'm an allocator. I get a hundred emails a day. I'm continually being pitched by managers right around the world. I'm way more invested with managers I'm indirectly invested with than managers that I'm just receiving their pitch book from. And so with a little bit more arm twisting, you know, that the, the managers all came on and agreed to provide $50 million of capacity to community capital credit fund on a completely fee-free basis, no management fees, no performance fees. We charge our investors a cost that's lower than it would be the cost to in, invest in those funds directly. And with, with our fee revenue, X our costs, which are a small portion of that fee, we make social impact grants back into the community. Um, and so with the quantum of capital we've raised thus far, we're confident that we'll distribute 15 to $25 million of grants back into the community here in Australia. And through that way, we make, I, I, I believe, far more material and meaningful impact than you might when we would do by mapping our loans against sustainable development goals. So put that in context, so you invested in Four managers currently? Actually, five. Five today. Yeah. 
each of them, you know, without you having to sort of name their fees, you know, we'll assume that they're charging 2% odd management fee, give or take, plus a performance fee. The super funds and other endowments and universities have invested with you. They get to access those managers for 1%. So they get a significant advantage than if they went direct. And that 1% on circa 500 million which is sort of the the target deployment number, five million a year goes to paying some costs, but the majority of it goes to the philanthropic efforts through ten by ten, which we'll talk about shortly. But what does it cost you to to run community capital? Yeah, so we've cap I mean the investors are very focused on this, right? They weren't gonna allow us to do this or the managers for us to like make an ARB on it, right? So we we completely disclose our costs. So we're saying over the life of the fund that we'll grant 70 to 80% of the fee revenue that's generated. And obviously those fix the costs. So as the fund grows, it's going to be closer to the 80% amount that would be granted, that will be granted. And then the 20 basis points, the delta is just effectively to cover the costs of, you know, my time running the fund. Yeah. And so we think that's, you know, very reasonable and obviously it creates great impact for the, for the organizations that we're supporting in the fund. But just on your math, because um, I know that everyone listening in this podcast is going to be very focused on the numbers um, and it is the line of credit podcast, but just on your math, obviously it's a drawdown fund, right? So we're not fully deployed. So we're not earning 5 million of fee revenue out the gate. We are earning fee on the capital that's deployed from the managers and that creates a donations pool and anything that's excess we grant prior to the end of the financial year. So we're at the process of actually doing our first grant round now, pre-June 30. I can't disclose who those organizations are yet, but they'll be announced in the next few weeks. And it's very it's been a very cool process to go through because the amount of money we're granting to these organizations really changes the game for them and it's like very material. So again, we'll come back to 10 by 10 in a minute. I just okay. want investors to and listeners to to hear about the, the fund because I want to encourage yeah. more people to to invest with you. Um, in terms of your, you, you know, again, so we said the potential is 80% of the income from community capital goes to charitable efforts, 20%, which would be circa a million dollars is sort of the estimate of the cost in terms of running the whole structure, running the business. But that sounds like it's not going to cover the full cost. And that's one of the areas that I know you've got some other donors supporting that. And that's the area that Merrick's is focused on and something we're going to get you to present to our team and we intend to to support that effort i guess from our perspective it's leverage right yeah if we can help fund your business but baron joey being great supporters in in different ways and there's a couple others that maybe you can talk to the, this notion of the people who fund purely administration costs and i think that's a you know one of the best things people can put their money to across philanthropy and i know in some of the other areas that we're involved in because so often most donors out there are fixated on all money going to charitable good, but someone has to fund the administration. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, to your example, so I knew going in to set up this fund, the investors would be very focused on like this amount that was going through to these social purpose organizations, right? But I also know from doing this work and just to touch on what, you know, the fund community capital will do and what 10 by 10 does, it funds early stage social purpose organizations and tries to help them grow. But we, I, in, in creating the fund, I needed to hire some people that would do real due diligence on the SPOs that we, we're considering granting to. The same way Merrick's Capital hires great analysts to review, to review companies that you're considering making loans to. The same way as an equity manager hires great analysts picking stocks, right? Like you need to hire good people to make good decisions around making grants the same way you need to hire good people about making decisions and making good investments. But I didn't want that to be a frictional cost to the fund because I knew the investors would be stuck on it, Right. So what I went and did was I um, secured the support of the Next Generation Foundation, which is the foundation that was founded by Nick Molnar, the founder of Afterpay. Um, and I went to Nick, who's a friend and supported me through, you know, the, some of the work I've done at 10 by 10 And I said, hey, 
here's an opportunity for you to create massive leverage. What I'm looking for here is a donation to fund the OPEX of the due diligence into the SPOs for the next three years, right? And from that donation, I'm confident we'll create this grant pool, which will distribute 15 to $25 million over the life of the fund. And Nick is a guy like, you know, he's a tech entrepreneur, he gets it. And he's like, this is an amazing opportunity for me through my foundation to grant massive leverage. And so they made a very generous donation. I think I can disclose it over, you know, basically three quarters of a million dollars over the next three years. And that will fund the OPEX of the due diligence into the SPOs. And through that and his participation and NextGen's participation in the fund, we've been able to create massive leverage in terms of the outcomes we're able to draw. And so to your point, that's a great place. That's a great way of like an, a donor thinking smarter. It's like, how can I fund something that's got leverage to create, you know, significant long lasting impact? And so, yeah, I was grateful to receive that level of support, which was very important at the start of the fund to, to make it stack up from the investor's perspective. Yeah, it makes it makes a ton of sense. And it's in an area where probably pretty passionate about, right? Bringing private credit to broader a range of in, investors, doing good at the same time. So before we sort of spend a lot of time on 10 by 10, maybe tell tell uh, listeners why do you think your private credit fund is a good investment? Tell us a bit about the fund. Well, I mean, this is a, um, the shoe's on the other foot now, really, isn't it, Adrian? Because I feel like from guys like you that were pitching me funds for many years, you're like, hey, here you go, here, pal, like see what it's like, you know, if shoes on the other yeah. foot now, right? And so- I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm looking forward to grilling you here. Go on, tell me why. It's, it's a, a payback. But the one thing I would say is like, this is an interesting anecdote. As an allocator, I sat there for 10 years and I, you know, as I, we actually first met when I was investing in hedge funds and you had an ag hedge fund. And, you know, then you obviously pivoted your business incredibly successfully. And I've loved following your journey to doing, you know, obviously private credit. But I always say like, as an allocator, you know, you'd have managers coming through your door all the time, right? And I didn't go through one period of financial markets over the last 10 years when a hedge fund manager, a private credit manager, or whatever manager didn't come through my door and tell me it was the best possible time to be allocating to their strategy, right? It didn't matter the economic environment, whatever you're in, it was always the best possible time. And I was actually on, the, on a call with one of my private credit managers a couple of weeks ago, and they were doing the market commentary bit. And the guy says, it's a golden age in private credit, right? And I just thought it was very funny because it's like, you know, yeah, everyone tells you it's the best of all time, but actually it is a great time, as you know, to be investing in private credit. And I think that, the, you know, your listeners would know the reasons for this, right? Like obviously there's, um, you know, significant regulatory pressure the banks are under globally and they've shoot, massively had to pull back the, the increase in rates and the widening of spreads has created probably, you know, some of the most attractive returns I've seen in the last 10 years in, in investing in private credit, not without increased risk, but I think particularly focused on the senior secured part of the capital structure the types of returns you can earn in traditional direct lending right now um, and senior secured first lien lending against hard asset back collateral is as attractive as I've certainly seen it in the last 10 years. And so I think, therefore, building a globally diversified portfolio that can achieve that objective with diversification across manager, capital structure, although we are 95% you know, senior secured at the moment, and then sector, right? So when I think about diversification, it's general sector diversification, Part of it in traditional asset-backed lending, which is some of the stuff that you do at Merricks in real estate. Part of it in corporate credit, mid-market, and uh, and and some other you know sort of more niche strategies focused on again you know asset-backed lending through through one of our other managers. I think like that creates what I think is you know a very attractive time to be investing. We're targeting ten to twelve percent returns, so I think relatively consistent with what I think people are earning now globally on senior secured first lien lending and with very high quality managers that, you know, as you would know, have the capability to have strong teams of with focused on good origination, deal structuring, and then work out capability in the event that things do go wrong, acknowledging the, the increased risk environment that we're in at the moment. So I think 
they're the building blocks of the portfolio that we've been able to put together. And I'm confident that, you know, with, with the, the managers we have managing the capital that we'll be able to deliver on the, the objectives. So I think the second most bandied around phrase after it's a golden age for my space um, is people saying it's great risk-adjusted returns. When you talk to risk-adjusted returns as someone that's spent a lifetime looking at what does good risk-adjusted returns mean, how do you benchmark risk-adjusted returns here? How do you think about the returns relative to the risk and how do you do you break it down? Because there's obviously the underlying loans themselves, but you're locking money up. How do you think about the return for the various risks you're taking? Well, there's two questions. I mean, from, from an allocator's perspective, right, like from an asset allocation perspective as an institutional allocator, I think the answer to their thinking about is what's my benchmark, right? So where are they allocating capital from to and what's the risk fee rate of that allocation, right? So for many institutional allocators, it's traditional fixed income. Am I earning a meaningful spread above that? And am I being compensated for it? And that's the way in which I think, you know, asset allocators from the large institutions would think about what am I risk adjusted return? What's my premium over effectively my benchmark that I'm achieving through, through doing that? But the way I would sort of, and I, the way I'd sort of very much think about it is always in terms of downside, what's my, you know, what's the downside here in, and my downside risk with respect to the underlying portfolios I'm effectively creating through my managers and what uh, and where am I creating them, right? So in a real estate example, what LTVs am I creating the loans, are my managers creating the loans at in a corporate credit mid-market lending example, what is the attachment point through which I'm creating the company on a multiple basis and am I comfortable at where I'm creating in terms of the margin of safety that I've built in with respect to the downside and what am I being compensated for for that? And I'd say like, so those are the two, you know, I'd say things that, that, that an, as from an, just maybe sharing from an allocator's perspective, they would think about allocating to private credit within a, being conscious of the, of the risk-adjusted returns and the risk-free piece of, you know, the, where they're creating the portfolios. Let's assume the funds you're investing in are going to perform at the bottom end of the range. Let's not get yeah. too optimistic, despite it being the golden age, as you said. Um, so let's assume they earn 10% returns. How do you Again, on a risk-adjusted basis, you're saying they're going to benchmark that to a what investment-grade credit, or how do you think about that? And what's the you know, the relative returns? You know, with investment-grade credits earning what five, five and a half percent return? Now, is that fair, or would some yeah, people I think say? So. And then, 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 then there's like maybe a two. They'd say like two hundred over what the what the fixed income benchmark would be. And so that would be the objective from the bucket that they're allocating from. And we know in Australia with your future, your super as well in terms of that benchmark is how their fund is, how they're being evaluated against at the total fund level. So when allocating to these strategies as an allocator, you're always thinking, okay, well, what am I allocating from and what am I being judged against? And I think that very much determines the mindset of the asset allocator in terms of how they think about that allocation. So in your example, yeah, let's say it's a fixed income benchmark, let's say for private credit, because it's a liquid, you've got to, you'd, you'd, you'd be expected to earn at least 200 over so then in your example, that's say 700. If I'm earning you know, 10% in your example, that's a 300 basis point premium over what my cost of you know, funds are effectively. And, am I being, you know, and that seems like I'm being well compensated for that. And then what's it costing me? Because that's the other element that goes into the, the, asset, the allocator's mindset in terms of how they think about where, what their return premium um, they're generating, what's the, co- what, what's the cost of that to them? So you, you said before 200 basis points or 2%. Premium yeah. for liquidity is that in your mind where liquidity premium sits for for private credit? I think so. 
and that's with ART, that's sort of, yeah. you think that's consistent. Obviously, yeah. you can't talk to other, you can talk to some of your other investors, but I guess the intimate knowledge of an ART as an example. Uh, yeah, I think that's about right, like two to 250 maybe. I mean, yeah, I think that's what you're expected to earn over the benchmark. Or yeah. that's the liquidity premium effectively you're expected to earn. Yeah, so it's a pretty good return, 10% yeah. equity risk premium. The ASX 200 over the last 15 years is sort of total return on a 10-year rolling is about 8%. Yeah. So it's certainly attractive giving you equity returns for less risk. It's sort of the way that, that we tend to talk about it. And uh, I yeah, think that's, that's right. And also keep in mind, like, and then people like actually get very critical about this, but it's kind of fact, like like it or not, right? Like it's also less volatile because it's smart quarterly, you know, and so relative to fixed income, which you can kind of get moved around a lot, right? Like as an alloc- asset allocation, the, the vol profile of allocating to private credit, acknowledging that, yes, okay, the, the underlying characteristics of the, the loans may be imp- impacted by the same way fixed income is impacted, but the, but the volatility profile of the return stream is like far lower and so from an asset allocator's perspective, from an institution as well, that, that's kind of helpful for you. And so do you think this is something that should appeal to individuals and wealthy individuals? I mean, you've sort of framed it in an institutional perspective, but at an individual, and you know, we're talking about, I guess, wholesale wealthy yeah. individuals or family officers, do you think this has appeal, this product? I, I think so. I'm like, oh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm like, in my PA, I want more allocation to this, right? It's like frustrating for me right now. I can't allocate to my own fund. Because, you know, we're very much focused on, we, we, we probably create a little share class uh, for, for us, for ourselves, you know, to invest into it. But, the, but because it's all institutional capital, we've got like a minimum check size that's, you know, quite material. Unfortunately, you know, having had a life in a super fund and then, you know, the other part of me in, uh, in philanthropy, I haven't generated enough meaningful wealth yet to achieve the own minimum ticket size in my own fund. Um, but, you know, I think like PA, on a PA basis, I think like it's a, you know, it's a great relative value trade right now to be allocating to private credit, right? Like you, for the types of returns you can earn, double digit, senior secured, very defensive. I think we're going into a clear economic environment globally that's very, you know, un, is a very unknown. A lot of talk about recessions, you know, about a recession globally in various markets. And so if I can be invested in high quality loan portfolios that are senior secured, defensive with strong fundamentals, I would... For that type of return, I would be allocating to that in my PA over, you know, some of the other strategies that I think are, you know, on on product menus across the country. And I think that there's a lack of those types of offerings, I think. So maybe that's mm-hmm. also a reason why you've been, you know, so successful in your business is, is providing a very high quality offering to that part of the market. Why, why do you think there's not more direct investment into private credit by super funds and institutional investors? Like Again, it's, that, it's, the it's, a break, it's the white space, right? It's like, how, where do you asset allocate from it? That's been the challenge, right? So it's like traditionally asset allocation teams in, in super funds had bucket for private equity, bucket for fixed income. Some of them did some alternatives. That was all very much like the alternative stuff was more traditionally like macro or hedge funds or ways of creating real diversified type of returning exposure, maybe some downside protection in the event of sell-off or a spike in vol, right? Whereas there was just no bucket for this, right? And so- I remember when we first started allocating to private credit from hedge funds was with my, you know, colleague at the time who I know you know well, Bruce Tomlinson, and he was like seeing the types of returns that hedge funds were generating in an environment where, you know, he'd made a large allocation. You're an ex-macro guy, I know you worked at Citadel, right? Like 
during that period macro of the last GFC, macro hedge funds were a great trade. They, they were effectively long vol. You had a, you had a huge, um, in terms of the movement in rates, they significantly you know, benefited from that huge, huge reduction in rates. And so macro hedge funds through that period were a great trade. When we, post-crisis, we had that period of really lower, vol, lower volatility, allocations to macro hedge funds like didn't work out, right? It was costing you two and 20. The returns weren't there because the vol wasn't there. So the traders weren't making money. And so we then said, okay, well, we're under a huge amount of pressure here from, you know, effectively from the asset allocation team at, at the fund. Like, how do we allocate to a strategy where we where we have a great certainty of of greater certainty of outcome? And we saw banks pulling back globally, and so we started literally pivoting our whole allocation away from investing in fifty percent macro hedge funds globally to building out into private credit allocations with with effectively firms that were stepping into be, become non-bank lenders around the world and we built out that portfolio from 0 to over 3 and a half billion in like you know th- four or five in 5 years and and I think that was because we had we were given the bandwidth to do that it's so I'm not sure that allocators have that yeah, it's talked about I know in all the surveys private debt's the biggest area of yeah number one for almost all surveys around the world of potential allocation but why don't people bring it in house? Why? Yeah. Why? Oh. We've seen the big trend. Obviously, people running equities in house, yeah. fixed income in house, um, infrastructure. Why not private credit direct? Well, well, I think in Australia, right? Like Aussie Super are doing it, Aware are doing it. I think CBUS are doing it direct. But I think that they're only doing it domestic. I mean, you'd know this better than me because maybe you push up against them in the market. But I think the challenge is like to have the depth of origination capability. You've got to be very plugged in if you're doing sponsor backed or P sponsors then have the um, structuring capability and expertise that you need to build out and then work out capability and, and capacity and appetite for things to go wrong and work out. I think they're hard things to, to bring into, you know, institutional organizations, super funds that I think are set up like really to be very, very risk adverse and find it hard to structure their internal teams with the level of resources that are required to support this type of work. Because it's, as you would know, it's like you got to hire real teams, right? Like it's deep work. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just scalability. Like you need to deploy four, five, ten billion. If you're a two hundred and fifty billion dollar fund, you would need a hundred odd people and the cost base for that and attracting the talent. And then I think there's the element of fear holding a direct asset where you had to enforce on an asset. Yeah, yeah. one of the you know, the unfortunate elements of private credit is sometimes you have to go and retrieve the money. You know, borrowers can't repay you. And I think that reputationally is is difficult as well but you know it's what's required to to protect investor capital some on the odd occasion but yeah look i think it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves clearly as you said at the outset banks pulling back there's tens of thousands of people in the banking system that originate structure manage these loans and so if we're going to replicate that capital outside the regulated capital framework you need to replace those people and processes and systems, and it just doesn't scale that that quickly. Let's maybe pivot because I think um, I think people have got a good idea about the fund and why it's so attractive. But let's talk a bit about the purpose. Maybe give us a little history about Ten by Ten and its journey. It's quite it's quite incredible how it's become this organic beast that sort of operates a little bit without you these days. I wish it um, would operate completely without me, but like anyone who finds any business, I don't think you realize you can never be completely free from it, um, particularly when it's a social purpose organization. So just 10 by 10, um, I founded that organization 10 years ago. Like you, Adrian, I come from a community that's very like passionate about, you know, thinking about giving back. And I like grew up in a family where like those 
those values were very instilled in me. And so I think from an early age, I always thought to myself, like, well, how can I meaningfully, you know, make a contribution to the world outside of, you know, my work as a, in the financial services sector. And so I had always done a lot in, in fundraising and done a bit in, you know, in some of the, you know, Jewish organizations um, in Sydney in my youth. But when I come back, moved back from London, when I was working in fund funds, I wanted to try and do something, you know, different. And I realized that there were two problems that I saw that I thought we could maybe try and solve. And that was the first problem was that I saw in my generation, and this was like a young professional moving back from London. I was like, you know, I don't know, I was 30 at the time. I saw a real desire from young professionals to want to give back, want to live lives of more purpose and meaning, but everyone just lacks the time, the knowledge and the infrastructure to do so in a way that's meaningful to them. And it makes a difference, right? So how do we give back in a way that's like meaningful and makes a difference, but also isn't take up all our time. And the second problem I wanted to try and solve, and I'm more sure of this than ever, was that I believe that change in society happens from the ground up, that grassroots levels of communities everywhere from, you know, Bondi to Brixton to Brooklyn, there are amazing social founders of social, early stage social purpose organizations that all struggle with the same problem. They lack access to capital and, and, and networks to help them grow. So how could I bring those two worlds together? Young professionals motivated to do things outside of their work and in their lives that were more meaningful and early stage social purpose organizations that needed funding and networks. So we decided to create a movement, our concept relatively simple. We'd get 10 people, we, ha we first started with 10 friends, they'd each invite 10 friends, so 10 people invite 10 friends, all to give $100, 10 by 10 times 100, $10,000 we started with. And we had an event. It was actually at the offices where my where 10 by 10 is still today. It's a great co-working space in Paddington, which was set up by Mark Carnegie, who was one of the first backers of 10 by 10. And we invited three early stage social purpose organizations that we found to come and give a pitch for five minutes. It was a five minutes, five minutes of questions from a shark, like kind of matter on Shark Tank. It was Mark Carnegie that night. And then there was five minutes of questions from the audience. When everyone arrives at the 10 by 10 event, they get their $100 given back to them in the way of two $50 charity vouchers. You can see my, my role as an allocator coming into play here, right? And then we empower the audience about the decision where to give their money. So you heard three pitches, you've got $100, you can only give two, or you can, if, you, if you're feeling generous, you can give a bit more. And so you make that decision. And in doing that, we empower the audience to start thinking about the types of issues that exist within society. And then we did two other things at the end of every 10 by 10 event that made it quite scalable. We did we connected people that wanted to give their time to the organizations in non-financial ways. So we created this great marketplace for, the, for a connection. And then we asked 10 people from the audience to put their hands up to be part of the organizing committee for the next event to ensure that we were never pulling on the same pool of people and the model was always growing and scaling. And to your point, it got a life of its own from that point. I'd never intended it, to be honest, like would ever go beyond. I thought I'd do two events in Sydney. It would be my social contribution. That would be it done, I'd feel good about myself, go back to my finance job, and that would be it. But it took off, and it spread to Melbourne, to Adelaide, Brisbane. Then now we're in 13 cities all around the world. Um, we've had over 135 events, attracted over 15,000 people, supported over 360 early-stage SPOs, and, and granted over $6 million to, to charities. But the real power has been more in the types of organizations we've identified on that journey, and that's what I'm very passionate about now. It's about connecting capital to the best early stage social purpose organizations and helping them grow. So you mentioned, you know, you'd have three groups come and pitch, you know, early um, philanthropic venture type businesses would come and pitch. And I assume the three that came to pitch, they were just kind of guys that you like, guys, girls that you just like, you know, that was pretty cool, like let's support it. Now in, I guess, the same way as yeah, you've done for the last 20 years in your career in terms of doing due diligence on managers, that's 10 by 10, you sort of the funding that we were talking about earlier that Nick and others giving to do the research on these different groups and to make it um, 
the efficiency of capital giving even from donors. Is that, is that a correct summation? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, like we've created the same way that you would do through Merrick's or any of your other listeners if they run a, a fund or um, invest in them, right? They're like you've got a funnel, right? Like there's your origination teams out there looking at loads of loans when I'm sure there's lots of loans that get to, don't even get to your desk because they've been, they've come through the funnel and your analysts are saying, this isn't something that Merrick's would do. It's the same process, right? Like there are an incredible number of, I think, SPOs, social purpose organizations out there. We have this broad funnel of them coming through organically through these events we run around the country. How do we arrive at making great decisions about back, backing the best early stage SPOs? Um, and that's what community capital is looking to do. 10 by 10 is more a marketplace that just creates that frame, that platform for these organizations to come in to be heard by an audience and then supported. But community capital is doing a level of deeper work and that is doing much deeper due diligence into the SPOs and considering them for funding for community capital. And then a really important piece of our governance process at community capital that I just want to be very clear on because it's not funding 10 by 10, it's funding the organizations that 10 by 10 is identifying. And those organizations are then are put up by 10 by 10 for consideration. And we have an independent selection committee that makes that decision, right? Because I wanted to introduce a complete independent governance process. I knew if like the investors wouldn't be, I just didn't think that it would be an attractive proposition to the investors if they thought that I was the one deciding on where the money would go. And so therefore I, I wanted to set up genuine independence and we're doing that. And so we have a selection committee at Community Capital, which is made up of five of the country's leading minds on grant making. It's chaired by Amanda Miller, who's the chair of Philanthropy Australia and deputy chair of the Federal Government Social Impact Task Force. Daniel Petrie's on there, who you would know is like one of the preeminent venture capital investors in Australia, founder of Airtree. He was very involved with Bill Gates at the Gates Foundation. We have their chief portfolio officer of Ramsey, which is the largest foundation in the country, PRF, Mindaroo, who are large investors. And then we have David Williams, who's also former head of venture philanthropy at SVA. So I created that framework of, you know, very strong governance, but the organizations that are being presented to that committee need to be presented in a way that's, you know, very detailed and thorough. And that's where the funding that, that has been provided by Next Generation Foundation and, you know, hopefully by you guys as well is, is doing deep work in, in, in procuring those, those recommendations to the committee to be funded by community capital. And when you think back of um, all the the different ventures that 10 by 10 has funded, what are your top two or three that have really inspired you the most? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is where it's like, I mean, like I get goosebumps when you ask me that question because it's like, to be honest, it's it, this is why I do this, right? And it's like most of the time I'm just like a fund manager and event, and I, and I have an event management company that like doesn't make, you know, that's a not-for-profit, right? I'm not like in the weeds going out in the field seeing these organizations. I'm just doing it because I'm passionate about the impact outcomes that we're able to achieve. Um, and so when I get to tell the stories of the organizations, it's pretty cool. But maybe two, just to, to give you some great example, like two amazing organizations, um, I'm sure your listeners would be aware of like two mates from Brisbane called Nick um, Marchese and Lucas Patchett. They, they came out of uni in, in Brisbane and they had uh, this idea to put washing and drying machines in vans and drive them around parks where people are experiencing homelessness and and wash and dry the clothes of, of people experiencing homelessness. And Around that, they created these amazing orange chairs where people sit down and have a conversation because a lot of people don't choose homelessness, they fall into it. And so creating a safe space for people to have a discussion about that is like very powerful as well. And so I first met Nick and Lucas, they had one van and this idea in Brisbane and that was it. And they said, hey, mate, we're trying to get a bit of money together to like set this thing up in Sydney. And I said, well, look, we've got this thing 10 by 10. Why don't you come down and pitch to raise enough money to set up your first van in Sydney? So they came down, it was about five, six years ago, oh, longer, I mean, six, seven years ago now, 
And they pitched and they raised enough money to set up their first ever van in Sydney, their second van. Then they were sub 100K in revenue. NFPs have revenue too, right? It's how much money they you know raise and get to spend on their programs. They were sub 100K in revenue. And today they've got 60 vans right around the country. They were Young Australians of the Year and their combined revenue is now $11 million across their business. But they ran around for the first four or five years of their lives, five grand here, 10 grand there, wholly inefficient. We don't starve our for-profit businesses that way. So why are we starving our social purpose organizations with the same type of constraints around funding? And so they're just in a great example of an organization that we back that have gone on to achieve, you know, really amazing things. And one other example I may give, and actually I might just give this example in, in a story I may tell around the capital raising for this fund, because I think I told you this story, but I'm, if, if it's okay, I'll engage your listeners in it, because it's, um, it's a cool story about how I think if you're doing work that's genuinely embedded with like the right essence that I think, and often the world rewards you in ways you don't expect. And so I was doing the fundraising for this fund, for the community capital fund, and, and ART were like very clever. They said to me, we'll put in the first 100 mil, but you don't, we're not doing it unless you get another 100. And I was like, I've never raised a dollar in my life. How do I do this? They're like, just, and I was like, I'll find a way. So I started ringing around all the allocators and super funds that I knew and I'd built relationships with over the years. And one of the investors had, had said to me, and I knew, you know, knew him reasonably, well, I think we're in, we're good for like, you know, a number. And I said, great. And then he rang me, I remember it was like September, October last year when equities had really sold off. And then he was overweight, unlisted, his private credit portfolio. He said, mate, I've got a problem. I'm overweight, unlisted. I can't do the allocation. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't got no money. So I was like devastated, right? Like I'm, I'm like not, you know, I don't have the thick skin that you've probably developed <laughs> over many years of doing this, right? So I'm like so upset. I'm like devastated. I was like, oh, it's a, such a setback. He goes, look, there's another guy who runs a retail part of the fund. Come in, pitch it to him. He maybe has a bit of money behind the couch. We can allocate to this. They were So I said, okay, fine. So we go in. I take Michael from Baron Joey. who's been an amazing joint venture partner with me on this journey. And we go and we pitch the fund again to him. And it's going terribly right like I've not done that many fundraiser meetings but like if the guy's looking out the window and folding his arms and totally disinterested in what you're saying it's generally not going well he's like I'm like this is a disaster we're getting no money it's a anyway at the end of the meeting he says to me at the end of my spiel he says so mate where's the money going and I said sorry he goes where I'm in the grants he goes yeah and I said oh the grants I said and I normally I give an example and I tell you and I, normally I always give the example of another organization we've backed at 10 by 10 called street side medics which is a medical outreach program for people experiencing homelessness. But for whatever reason, in this meeting, I gave a different example. My rabbi, by the way, Adrian tells me this was divinely inspired. I'm not sure, but anyway, I give this example of um, an organization called Fighting Chance. And what Fighting Chance do is they take people right across the disability spectrum and place them into meaningful employment opportunities and social enterprises. It's founded by amazing brother and sister combo uh, nation here in Sydney called Laura and Jordan O'Reilly. And they I first met them, they had one clinic in French's Forest with 23 kids, again, like definitely sub half a million in revenue. And they've gone on now to build an amazing organisation that's with our support and with the support of some found donors we've connected them with, gone on to grow and, and develop three social enterprises alongside their not-for-profit combined revenues of over 200 million and, and have over, over, when we first met them, there was like 50 kids in their program. They've now got over 3,000, right? Amazing organisation. And as I was telling this story of Fighting Chance, to this gentleman that, to whom I was pitching, his whole demeanor in the meeting changed. He was like engaged, he's nodding, he's very engaged. And then at the end of my spiel, he says to me, this is a stitch up, right? And I said, sorry. He said, this is a stitch up. He goes, you must have known. I said, what did I know? He said, well, you must have known that we have a daughter. We send her to Fighting Chance. She's got, you know, lives with disability and it's meaningfully changed our family's life. And Michael from Baron Joey, who was sitting next to me, said to me, mate, you're the best sales guy I've ever seen, right? <laughs> 
Um, but obviously I had no idea, but it's a, but it, it speaks to when you do this type of work and you're touching people's lives right across society. And I go back to that first example I gave of the loan against the office building in Minneapolis, right? That's not in my mind impact in terms of regenerating. When you, what this work is, is real impact. It's touching people's lives in corners of society right across the country. And that's what this fund has been established to do in terms of its impact. And that is the legacy that I hope will go on to create. And so they're the types of examples of the, you know, some of the organisations we're looking to back. And we're trying to solve a really big problem here in Australia. And that's that early stage social purpose organisations in this country can't get access to capital to help them grow. If you're sub a million dollars in revenue, it's very hard to get funding. And so what community capital will do, will provide multi-year funding grants of $100,000 to $500,000 a year for up to five years, for three to five years, to these organisations to help them through a very important piece of their growth trajectory. It's a, a pretty powerful story and something. Um, really happy to give it some airtime today. You know, we'll, uh, we'll certainly circulate some more information where people can learn more about the journey. But I think um, it's a really incredible story in terms of how you know, someone in finance almost created a structured finance type product of leveraging you know, the different parts of the cap stack to release money for um, philanthropic needs. So Good on you, Lawrence, and um, something we look forward to supporting you on. So thanks for your time today and, and hopefully our listeners have, have certainly been inspired to go and learn some more. Thanks, Adrian. And you can find 10 by 10 at 10 by 10 philanthropycom We do events right around the country, so I encourage any of your listeners to come and attend. Um, and I'm grateful for you to providing this platform and for you know your support on this journey. And it's just great to have guys in our industry that get it and are aligned um, from a value perspective. So thank you to you and to, to Merrick's for, for, for the support. Thanks, Lawrence. Merrick's Capital is an Australian fund manager delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital, head to www.merrickscapital.com. 